With culture and technology having such a heavy influence on whether a workforce stays or leaves, strategy and leadership has become ever more crucial in companies succeeding. I'm Liron, and you're listening to HD Live Podcasts, a show where we discuss all topics related to HR. On today's episode, I'm joined by Joel Brockner, a professor at Columbia Business School, and we'll be discussing organisational change and leadership. Hello, Joel, and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, nice to be with you, Laurent. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. So could you start off with further elaborating on what field you specialize in at Columbia Business School? Yeah, I've been a member of the faculty here for about 35 years, talking and te- teaching students rather about uh, organizational change, leadership, uh, what I would call the human side of running an enterprise as opposed to maybe the more quantitative or financial side, which if many of my colleagues here at Columbia are well-versed in. Sounds very interesting. So um, what would you say are the root causes of organizations that need to change? Uh, It's typically a response to or an anticipation of change in their external environments. Uh, There could be uh, changes, you know, oftentimes those changes are more negative, shall we say, demanding, threatening, constraining, you know, new regulations that organizations need to be in compliance with or new competitors uh, that you need to deal with that were never there before. But when I talk about change in the external environment as a prompt for uh, internal changes within organizations, I don't always mean to be the purveyor of doom and gloom. You know, sometimes the changes are positive changes. There could be new markets to reach uh, or changes in technology make it possible to offer either new products and services or existing ones uh, you know, in new ways. So typically it's a, uh, a shift in the external environment. Either it's already happened or even better, if organizations can kind of be ahead of the curve and anticipate, you know, where the environment is going, uh, then they can introduce changes usually in a more timely fashion. But to answer your original question, it typically begins with uh, changes in the external environment in some form. So with these um, changes happening in these organizations, Are there any specific industries or sectors who have to continually undertake these changes? Yeah, that's a a great question. Uh, And uh, I would say that it's worldwide, industry-wide, you know, organization-wide. One of my colleagues at Columbia Business School, Todd Jick, one of the world's great authorities on organizational change, recently wrote a chapter on how uh, it's not even an industry thing, you know, anymore. Uh, it's really across the globe, across industry. So I'm hard pressed to say, you know, it's it, this particular, you know, industry, uh, you know, pharmaceutical, uh, financial services, uh, media, uh, you name it. Uh, they're constantly having to deal with change. Uh, and, and again, that's because of shifts in their external environment. So what type of organizational changes are we talking about and how do you feel like these indicators can be specifically tracked? Uh, well, there's, um, you know, you could talk about large-scale organizational change. Uh, typically, we, uh, at Columbia and elsewhere, we, we you know, we try to uh, instruct executives on, you know, how to uh, deal with a variety of changes. So we begin with kind of large-scale ones like sometimes it could, it, could take, it could take the form of a downsizing 
or sometimes just the opposite growth uh, could be a growth through merger or acquisition. Uh, more typically, we see organizations trying to um, implement more what we call organic form of growth. They're just trying to grow their market share without necessarily acquiring or merging with another organization. Sometimes a change could take the form of relocation or restructuring or introduction of new technology, as mentioned, or sometimes it's outsourcing. Uh, but those, again, I begin with large-scale organizational changes, but you know, oftentimes organizations are having to do what I would call more tinkering you know, types of changes. They need to introduce change not throughout the organization, you know, but within a subunit or two within the organization. Uh, so it really runs the gamut from kind of revolutionary change uh, that's happening again a lot to more smaller incremental evolutionary changes. Uh, and you know, managers are being paid big bucks these days in order to be able to handle those processes well. So what would you say are the biggest challenges that come with making a successful change? I would say that the biggest challenge is dealing with employees' resistance. Uh, you know, most times when, when changes are introduced, uh, it's not as if employees are saying, great, how can I help you, <laughs> you know, to their bosses. More often than not, not always, but more often than not, they are resistant, and they could be resistant for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, sometimes they're resistant because they feel that they're being taken out of their comfort zones. You know, they were experts in their activities, and now the change is going to require them to do different things. And, you know, most people don't enjoy being taken out of their comfort zones. It's often said we're creatures of habit. Uh, and part of what, what underlies is that is that we feel comfortable, we feel competent doing the same thing. So change disrupts that, requires us to do different things. And we can understand that people, at least temporarily, and maybe even longer than that, will not be happy being taken out of their comfort zones. Uh, another reason, you know, another basis for change not going well is that, uh, frankly, many people don't, many employees who are affected might feel that it doesn't bode well for them. In other words, uh, they might lose not simply their jobs, but uh, they could lose power, status, authority, control. Uh, you know, I think people quickly size up what a change is going to mean for them. And if they sense that uh, they're going to be worse off rather than better off. We can readily understand them being, you know, more resistant to it. Uh, but the third and maybe the most challenging factor of all, it's not simply uh, that I'm going to be worse off and therefore I resist. Oftentimes people resist change because they don't feel like the process for its handling, how it was rolled out, how it was planned, implemented, introduced, it wasn't done very well. Uh, and as a result, you know, people will be resistant because they don't necessarily, if they don't necessarily object to the content or the substance of the change and what it means for them, they might object because they don't feel the process was handled well. And as a result, they push back. Mm, yeah, those are some really great points. And it's, and so, it's so important for companies to consider those, especially uh, the ones with people, because, I mean, people are the, the most important things about a company. Um, Certainly, absolutely. Hmm. You know, it's often said that, uh, you know, the old adage, uh, you know, pe people are an organization's most important assets, collectively, certainly they are. And if they don't, if, you know, if they're un disgruntled or unhappy with the way things are being handled, then even if the change is strategically correct, it might um, not be successful because people 
aren't bought in. They're not engaged. They're not on board with the change. Mm, but uh, yeah, uh, but I guess um, the opposite to that is if um, the workforce is on board to that, then the change will be even more successful, right? Exactly right. Mm. Exactly. So as I said <clears throat> earlier, that they you know they'll often resist, but not always. You know, if, if people feel uh, that they're going to be better off, and sometimes change could be for the better. Or to your point, if they feel that the process was handled well, uh, then they are much more likely to be engaged. Mm, definitely. So what do you feel dictates whether the change will be successful? Yeah, so again, you know, kind of building on this point, uh, this last point of, you know, what do we mean by a well-handled change process? Um, I think we would intuitively agree with that. You know, if it's handled well, then people are more on board, they're more engaged, and it goes better. Um, um, but then, you know, that's a lot of terrain, there's a lot of territory when we talk about a well-handled change process. Uh, and most change management experts uh, would agree that handling the process well consists of four interrelated elements. Uh, So I'll walk you through each one of them. The first first point is to make the case for change, uh, to point out the gap between where the organization is and where it needs to be, you know, that the status quo is not sustainable. Now, sometimes it's so self-evident it kind of speaks for itself by, by definition. In other words, that the organization is doing badly, it's you know, readily apparent, uh, and the case has already been made. Sometimes the organization is doing okay. They're not doing badly. But what a change agent would do is make the case for change by pointing out the gap or the discrepancy between where the organization currently is and where it needs to go. So we should be dissatisfied with the gap uh, between those two points. So that's point number one, you know, what we call surfacing dissatisfaction with the current state. Now, if you only do that, and here, here's, now we're on to point number two, if an organization only does that, uh, they'll probably be seen as overly negative, only talking about what's wrong. So you have to show people a better alternative, and that better alternative is captured by the V word for vision. Uh, and so it's a, it's a combination of talking about the current state not being satisfying and, and providing a better alternative in the form of a compelling vision. Uh, now, it would be great, uh, or I should say, wouldn't it be great if change management was simply those two things, right? Talk about what's wrong with the current state, show people a better alternative, and then kind of step, step aside and let them naturally morph or transition from the dissatisfying current state to the better future state. Uh, If only it were that simple. Unfortunately, it isn't. So that brings me to my third point about, you know, handling the transition process well. Um, And that's a lot of things. It includes um, helping people to separate from the past, uh, giving them a reasonable explanation of why the organization needs to move forward, Uh, maybe most important of all, involving them in the change process. Not necessarily uh, involving everyone in the new direction, you know, setting the new stage, but at the very least, involving people in the process of how we make the transition, the details of moving from point A to point B. Uh, Oftentimes, people are the experts in terms of uh, a better way to do things. They're close to the 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 way in which work is done, so to the extent that they can be involved in the transition details, they're much more likely you know, to be on board. Uh, and then the fourth point, which uh, you know, comes back to what we were talking about earlier, is dealing with people's uh, resistance. So we call it the DV 
PR model. D for surfacing dissatisfaction, V for providing uh, a compelling vision of the future, P for having a, a set of activities and tools and resources for helping people to make the transition, and R uh, is dealing with resistance. And if change agents can do all four of those things, then we're much more likely to have the happy ending you know, rather than the unhappy ending where people are resistant, uh, depressed, demoralized, and otherwise longing for the good old days. Mm, yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. And um, I think everyone wishes it could be a bit more simple, but um, due to sort of technological advances and changes in culture, and also due to this multi-generational workforce, it's becoming ever more important to, for businesses to constantly change um, their business models and et cetera. Absolutely, no. They, they, you know, they have to change, uh, and then they. So, and you know, one could argue maybe they have to change, you know, more often than ever. It's been interesting articles and books written about the the pace of change, uh, you know, in the external environment, which you know drill, filters down to influence the need for change, uh, you know, internally. Uh, so there's the arguably the greater need for change that organizations have to undergo. And with that comes a a greater need for handling the process well. Uh, You know, you hear a lot these days about the concept of change fatigue, uh, which refers to how employees are kind of paralyzed. They feel exhausted from the number of changes that they uh, have to have, you know, their organizations are asking them to undergo. Uh, and I would submit to you, Ron, that part of what makes change fatigue fatiguing is not simply the relentless pace, although that's certainly in the mix, but the fact that change processes are not handled well. And if only they were handled well with respect to these four pillars that we were talking about earlier, if the change process was handled well, the change fatigue it probably wouldn't go away entirely because you know, there's something about that relentless onslaught that is draining. But if the process was handled well, I think change fatigue would be significantly reduced. Yeah, well, when you talk about this um, change fatigue, and obviously it's um, very crucial for businesses to nail um, their change sort of process, do you feel like there's a limitation into how many times companies can transform? Or do you feel like these um, th- it provides an endless opportunity for sort of innovation and expansion? Well, again, you have to... You know, you have to um, be careful sometimes, you know, if I've seen organizations that sometimes say, you know, we would like, we would have liked to have introduced this change, but um, we felt that our workforce wasn't ready for it. They just couldn't absorb it. And the nature of the change was such that it wasn't something that we had to do, you know, right away. Um, So I think you have to, you know, pick your battles to some extent, you know, when to the extent that you have the freedom to do so. Uh, it's very difficult to constantly being asked uh, your employees to undergo change. Um, that said, I think, you know, back to my earlier point, I think that if the process is handled well, then people are much more resilient and feel like, okay, we got through that one and the organization did the DVPR things well. Uh, so I trust them. I respect them. I think they have their act together. Uh, and it was the right call. And I was dealt with in a humane and sensitive way. I'm talking about uh, the reactions of employees who were affected. Uh, And so you gain a lot of goodwill by handling a change process well, thereby making it more likely for people to be embracing a future change efforts. 
Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, and, and lastly, for HR and business leaders who um, have experienced a change process, changed organization that hasn't potentially happened well, is there anything they can do to cure the sort of um, issues that, um, sp- that spur from that? Yeah, well, I, there's nothing um, more compelling sometimes than kind of uh, standing up to a mea culpa, you know, admit that the process, you know, wasn't handled well, uh, and then, you know, kind of move on from there. And by moving on, not just kind of taking responsibility, although I think that's a great start, it's to, uh, you know, show employees that, uh, that we've learned our mistakes, we've learned from our mistakes, uh, and we're going to do the process better. I'll give, you an, I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, I was talking to a CEO of a major international bank, um, and uh, he was talking to me about how the organization had uh, been, you know, had, had done a, ma- a pretty significant downsizing, and he was very proud of the fact that uh, he was, um, that his organization was quite generous to the people who had lost their jobs in terms of severance pay, outplacement counseling, you know, helping people to get back on their feet. Uh, and then I asked him what proved to be a bit of a conversation-ending question. I said, That's, it's great that you did a lot for the people who had lost their jobs. Um, do you, did you do anything for the people who were still there? And he looked at me kind of quizzically and said, well, you know, why do we need to do anything for the ones who are still there? They're the ones who uh, still have their jobs. They weren't really dramatically affected. Uh, and, you know, that, you know, we kind of parted ways amicably at, you know, at that point. But, the, but my point being that the organization was really insensitive to the effect of the layoffs on the people who remain. And oftentimes organizations even have a word for referring to people who are losing their jobs. They say uh, the employees who are affected by the layoffs, that word affected really affects me, no pun intended, because by calling the people who had lost their jobs the affected employees, the implication is that the ones who are still there are not affected. Now, Luron, if you were to talk to anybody who had survived an organizational downsizing, uh, they will tell you that they were affected as well, maybe not as dramatically, maybe not as negatively as the people who had uh, lost their jobs, but they were very affected as well in terms of losing friends, uh, losing trusted coworkers, their lives had been disrupted as well. Uh, so my point being that the next time, uh, I, what I'd like to think is that when this organization did a subsequent downsizing, they would have learned from their mistake of ignoring the survivors, if you will, and then paid attention to, not, to all people, uh, both those who are going out the door as well as those who are remaining. Uh, you know, nothing uh, more helpful to a survivor of a organizational downsizing than to be told that their job, at least as much as possible, is secure, uh, that there's still opportunity for them, you know, in the organization, you know, for the organization to show that it was sensitive to the people who had lost their jobs, as well as sensitive to the people who were remaining, uh, because again, they're affected as well. So, to your question, yeah, if it if a change process is botched, if it's not handled well, uh, it does put uh, executives in a bit of a hole in terms of losing trust of the, of the organization. But the operative word there is a bit of a hole. It's not irreparable. If they can make a turnaround, if you will, and show that they've learned from their mistakes uh, and are more adherent to this DVPR um, 
process that I talked about earlier, then um, I think many employees will be appreciative, appreciative and be more likely to be on board with subsequent change efforts. Well, thank you so much for your time, Joel. It was lovely to have you, and it was very insightful learning about organizational change and transparency and reward and recognition and leadership. Thank you. Thanks for listening to HD Live Podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, iTunes, and on the HD Connect website.